everybody to the first episode of the Medical and Dental Student Podcast. I'm Amy, third year dental student here at McGill University. My name is Maya. I'm a first year medical student here at McGill University as well. And we are very... <laughs> You're going to make me say that. We are very excited to introduce our first guest. Um, he is the Vice Principal of Health Affairs and the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences. He is a McGill graduate himself in 1979, and he has been the Dean since the year of 2012 here at the Faculty of Medicine, Dean Eidelman. Thank you, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. This is very exciting. I've never been on a podcast before. We are so excited to have you. Um, Maya, take it away. Yeah, we're super excited to have you and actually would actually like to get to know you a little bit better. So um, why did you even go into medicine in the first place? That's a great question. So I was, I, I, I remember being a little boy. I must have been about 10. I might have been nine. <clears throat> and I remember getting a birthday present called the Boys Book of Medical Science. This was uh, a long time ago, as you can imagine, because the idea was only boys went into medical science. Uh, not only that, but it was a British book, and it was, uh, you know, that was a very, it had a certain style to it. It was very, uh, <clears throat> I guess, uh, it was a, a little snooty, frankly. <laughs> and I love this book, and I still remember it, obviously, uh, many, many years, many years later. And I, obviously, people gave me that for my birthday because they knew I was interested in medicine already. I was already uh, from a very young age. And I, it was on my very short list of things to be right from uh, childhood. I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, I'm not sure I knew what that was. I knew what my doctors were like. But uh, I, it was always a fantasy of mine. I was very, very interested in science, even as a very young uh, kid. Uh, I was very keen on technology, science, uh, math, and, uh, and biology. And I, it just was something that got stuck in my brain at a very young age. It's hard to know why a nine or 10 year old decides they want to do something. But I've been on a straight line since that age to this very spot in this very time. So it started off as a dream at nine years old. Yeah, I mean, I was always, I never really, th I thought of a few other things. I, my second choice was to be a, an engineer. I was very interested in, uh, in engineering, especially electrical engineering, which was a big thing then. I was really interested in computers. I'm still, I still program computers as a hobby. I, I, like I'm, a, I'm, I'm a very, I was a very nerdy, very nerdy person. <laughs> I'm still a very nerdy person. And, <laughs> and, um, uh, that was my second choice, but I really liked, I'm, I'm a little bit too uh, uh, interested in, in hanging out with people and, and talking to people to be a really successful, um, you know, a person who just sits there and programs computers. Um, and, and I really was attracted to the idea of being in a profession where you could uh, do science um, and also help people. And it sounds kind of corny and maybe cliche, but that's the truth. It's always going to sound corny, I think. Yeah. And help it. That's really why I did it. So from there, you started medicine, and how did you? So I was your I was a med I was a med P, and so just to realize how long that we've had med P <laughs> since the middle of the last century, I was a med P. And uh, um, I was on the fast track uh, to, I, I realized very early in medicine 
especially in medical school, I think it's more than dental school. Uh, there's a, because it's big, the classes are big. There, there, there are different personality types. Mm -hmm. And I was definitely the internal medicine, internal medicine personality type. I was more interested in understanding how things work than actually getting things done at that time. I, I changed over time. I became much more surgical as I got older, but that's how I was at the time. <clears throat> and um, so I knew I was, I, I was pretty sure I wanted to do internal medicine and internal, that was really the heyday of internal medicine, the late, uh, after the second world war into the 2000s. Um, it's when technology was very much shifted to uh, hospitals. So you, you, you realize that the whole idea of the academic medical center came about because you needed big technology to do things. You needed, you know, big x-ray machines and CT scans and ORs and all that. You still need those. But increasingly, we can do things uh, out in a family doctor's office or in a, in a generalist's office. But that wasn't the case then. And I thought it was really cool. And I also wanted to do research. And that was an area where research was very big. So that's how I did that. And then I, in my second year, the reason I mentioned research is I did a summer research bursary, which we still have that program. And I did that. And I did it in the laboratory of Dr. Um, uh, Dr. Hogg who went on, he left McGill right after I was, did a summer with him. So I'm sure that was my fault. You were lucky. <laughs> no, no, he, he was recruited to Vancouver where he became very, okay. Jim he became very, very famous there. He was already famous, but he became even more famous. But I did the summer research project and it was on pulmonary physiology in the, in the Lyman Duff building in what was then the <clears throat> Duff laboratory at the top of the building. I won't tell you what we did. It was horrible. And if I tell your listeners this, they will never, they, they, I, I will, my reputation will be ruined. But suffice it to say, we did all kinds of, all kinds of experiments that had to understand how blood flow worked in the lung. And it was, it was a very successful summer. We, we got an abstract. We didn't get a paper out of it. But I got really hooked on pulmonary physiology and pulmonary medicine at that point. So I was between first and second year, I guess. And that was it for me. I had that in my mind that that might be something I wanted to do. And then I went, I finished, I did internal medicine and did core internal medicine. I went to Toronto. Uh, I was at St. Michael's Hospital. And then I was at Toronto General Hospital, uh, as it was then known. And uh, I wanted to do pulmonary. And I applied to a number of places. But I, um, McGill had then and still has now one of the best pulmonary programs in the world. And so I went, I came back home. I said, I, I'll come there. I'll do a couple of years, get my fellowship, and then I'll, I'll go off to the States and do, you know, whatever. And I'm still waiting to leave. I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> never happened. I always threatened, but it never happened. I, I, I realized after a number of years that I'm a lifer. I'm just going to be here. This is what, this is what I do. forever. <laughs> Um, so, so how long did you work in respirology for? I started, I, I, I finished my training in the early 80s and I practiced until about five years ago. So I was still practicing a bit when I was dean, but I realized I couldn't be, you can't see enough patients to be really good. I, you know, they call it practicing medicine for a reason. You, you really have to see whatever your discipline is, you have to be active uh, in it in order to really be good. I don't think you can, it's not a, it's not something you can do. You can do part of it part-time, but I felt that I was not really uh, as good as I should be and my patients weren't getting the best possible care. So I, I, uh, I moved out. 
And uh, I think I did my patients a favor. I'm not sure I did myself a favor. I enjoyed seeing patients, but yeah. Yeah. Do you sometimes like miss it? Like sit in your office and you're like, I wish I could be with patients and this like paperwork is annoying or. Yeah, I do. I think what I miss the most is talking to the patients. So uh, you guys probably heard my talk when you started. I give this talk now at the beginning of med and dental school. And I talk about the importance of listening and humility. And um, as you can tell, I, I like to talk and uh, I work very hard at trying to listen when I'm not being interviewed, of course. Uh, <laughs> I, work, I work hard at trying to listen um, because I'm not that good at it. It's not my natural state. My natural state is to keep to just talk away. And um, I really learned a lot from my patients. I learned a lot. I learned about how to listen. I learned how to try and empathize with patients and understand the situation they were in. And I found that was the most rewarding part about being a doctor. Uh, of course, I enjoy things like doing bronchoscopies and reading x-rays and you know, di- making diagnoses and talking to people about medicine. I, I love that stuff. I love teaching. But the thing that's most rewarding is to sit with a patient. And I, as a lung doctor, I saw all kinds of lung disease and I often saw patients over many years. So when I finished, I had patients I had following like for 20 years, you know, and I really got to, we got to know each other. And uh, I found that that was fascinating, really getting to know other people and helping them discover ways to deal with very difficult situations, getting to know their families and so on. That was very rewarding. I think that that was the part I, I like the most about being a doctor. Um, uh, I obviously like technology and stuff. So of course, and that stuff was all cool uh, and I enjoyed it, but I didn't have to be a doctor to do that. So Well, what so led I, you to veer away from that though? And to, towards being- I got into med pee. <laughs> <laughs> I applied and I got in, that was the end of that. Like, had I not gone into med pee, had I gone on to do a bachelor's degree, I might've taken a different path. So you feel like when you say med P, is it because you had, you you were practicing for so many years and that made Oh, sense. I thought you guys got into into medicine. I got confused. No, no, sorry. Why? Um, how did you veer? Oh, off why did I? The oh, because like, setting. Yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. My my mistake. How did I? How did I? So let me. Why don't you ask the question again to make sure I understand? <laughs> how did you veer off from the clinical setting towards wanting to becoming dean and working? Oh, okay. So I. Yeah. So actually, when I was a baby, I wanted to be dean. No, no. Of course. Um, <laughs> Before nine years old. <laughs> Before you were. It was nine. the first thing I thought of. The first so I thing. Dean. I didn't know what it was. Um, no. Okay. To be dean. So what happened to me was I realized through taking on different roles that I was actually pretty good at administration. Now I wasn't as good as I thought I was. Let me be very clear. But I thought I was good, and other people thought I was good too because they kept giving me jobs. Also, nobody wanted to do administration. And I took on different roles and I got better at it and I kept moving up. And eventually I, I got to be uh, the head of the respiratory division at McGill. And um, that was very interesting and I learned a lot from it, but I still was learning. And then I got to be head of medicine, the department of medicine, which was a fantastic job. One of my, I'm, I'm still not sure which is a better job to be head of medicine or to be head of, to be the Dean head of medicine is much more close to clinical practice but the department of medicine has both very strong research very strong clinical very strong teaching and you get to if you want to you can be involved in all those things i really enjoyed that job 
And then unfortunately, the Dean who was here at that time, Dean Levin, he, he left, he, he didn't uh, renew for one reason or another. And then um, there was a vacuum and uh, people asked me to apply. So I applied and they didn't get the candidate they wanted. So they got me, like I was the second <laughs> choice. And uh, I took We're the job anyway. I, I, take it, I mean, I must've taken it personally for about five seconds, but then I got over it very quickly. So I got like I'm dean job. now, yeah, I'm the dean now. <laughs> and 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 I have to say, I I consider myself an exceptionally lucky person. I mean, I would be lying if I thought I I deserve to be dean or anything crazy like that. I know I'm very very fortunate, very privileged, as they say nowadays. And um, uh, I think now, after being dean for nine years, I'm I'm getting good at it. Finally. <laughs> I think that the student body feels that they're lucky to have you as Dean as well. Well, that's so um, nice to say. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> what do you feel is your proudest moment as Dean up to now, the past eight years now? So I, you're going to think it's weird. I thought about this. I don't have a, a clear answer. I think it's, I think my proudest accomplishment, not my proudest, I don't have a proudest moment. There's, there's just too many. I, being Dean, uh, it brings so many privileges. I met Nobel Prize winners and astronauts and, uh, you know, great students and uh, right here, on, uh, like you guys. <laughs> and I got to go on trips. I went to trips, trips all over the world, over to China and the Middle East. And I met extraordinary people in different places that I would never, never have met. The thing I'm proudest of is the team that I put together. And uh, when I say I, I mean, I, I contributed to building the team because it's not just my personal team. Because, and so my proof that we have a great team is that we've had to face a large number of obstacles in the time I've been here. Probably some of them are my fault, but uh, we've solved them. And in each case, we've dealt with them effectively and uh, we've gotten better. And so we've shown a lot of resilience as a, as a team. And so I, I'm very proud of the team that, that we've put together. And I tell this all the time, um, you know, right now we're dealing with COVID. COVID is a very serious problem, of course, because of the infection. It's also a very serious problem because of the impact it's having on students and professors and administrative staff and their families. People are really, really stressed. I mean, uh, you know, I might be being lighthearted about things, but don't, uh, don't, we shouldn't underestimate the challenge that we're facing getting through this winter. And I know that my team has really risen to the occasion. Uh, we have, um, you know, we have people like Dr. Montu that you you guys will know from uh, 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 Amy. You won't because you had Dr. Cummings who was very amazing. And Dr. Montu, we have uh, we have just so many great people, and there are people you don't know about because they're. <coughs> you know, I, uh, my theory, I have a I have a philosophy of administration. You can tell you've been doing administration a bit too long when you have a philosophy of administration. So this is my philosophy of administration. If you have a really good administration, nobody knows who, who they are. Everything works and they're completely invisible. They're just, who does that? I don't know, it works. That's, that's the measure of an administration. If you, yeah. if you know everything about who they are and you know, like some administrations I can mention in, in a country to the south of here, where they're in the, in the late night talk shows being made fun of every night, that's not a good sign. Yeah, we won't name them though. No, they should remain <laughs> nameless, thank goodness. I'm proud of my team. 
Uh, if I start naming them one by one, I will leave someone out and then I'll be embarrassed. So I'm not going to name them all. Um, I will name Dr. Muldu because that's someone that you know, but she's only one of many very great people. Many of members of our team are leaders at a, a Quebec or national level. Dr. Ryan, for example, is the head a person for uh, graduate uh, studies uh, uh, across Canada. Dr. Lamian is the head for uh, residency training across Canada. So, you know, we're very, very fortunate. We have just amazing people here. We have amazing students, of course, but we also have amazing, amazing people that I get to work with. And that's what I'm proudest of. I know that during my time um, in medicine, I, it was an amazing time. I, I thought it was so organized and there were so many resources like the pass or fail system. We had um, the well office that was also available to dental students. Um, during this time, there's already such a stigma, right? With mental health and given the COVID situation, I could speak for myself. It's been a tough time. It's been tough, especially living alone. Um, you know, having my hobbies outside of, outside of school, trying to get, trying to keep my identity that is separate from my, my school identity. How did you cope during this time? So I'm very, I'm, I'm very privileged in some ways. I mean, in the sense that I, my wife and I are in this house that used to hold a whole bunch of people and there's just the two of us. <clears throat> that way we stay out of each other's way most of the day and then we get together and have a nice time in the evening. <clears throat> no, I'm very lucky. My wife is retired. And so she, she's been doing all of the, you know, and get groceries and stuff while I'm on Zoom all day. So this has allowed me uh, to do that. And that means at the end of the day, I don't have to do laundry or, 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 or cook dinner or something. But also I'm not lonely. Um, uh, so that's helped a lot. I'm a kind of introverted person despite talking a lot. I, I like, I have all kinds of indoor hobbies that, uh, that I can do that aren't affected by, I'm not a sports person. <clears throat> but I'm, I have my difficulties. Both my children live in the United States. My son is like you, a single person living in New York City. He, he moved there because to work for a big co company, he works for Amazon Web Services as a computer guy. And, and of course, the whole attraction was going to be in New York. And he's very interested in Broadway plays and music. And of course, none of that is going on. So, <laughs> but my daughter is- breaks for him. My daughter, my daughter is, lives in New Orleans with her husband, who's a GI uh, fellow, and she's a she's a graphic designer. So she, her job is she works from home anyway. But she she had a baby during COVID, and Aww. baby's fine. But I've never actually see, held the baby. The baby is almost five months old. I I've seen the baby practically every day on FaceTime, but I've never held this new baby. And my other grandson is. Uh, is getting bigger and I read him stories on FaceTime that is the same thing as holding a, you know, having him sit in your lap or going for a walk or playing with him. So, you know, I've never, despite, you know, I have my own uh, limitations. Right. I would be much happier. My mom is 88 years old. She's still alive. She lives in an apartment by herself. She has a caregiver who comes in, but I only get to see her for an hour a week. Uh, while we sit, uh, you know, meters apart wearing masks, you know, right. this is, this is not nothing, but it's not the same thing as, uh, mm -hmm. as having, you know, a real relation. So I have a small taste of what a lot of people are going through. Many people have much more difficult situations. They've lost their jobs or uh, in order to do their jobs, they have to go out of the house and put themselves at risk 
risk of getting COVID and they worry about giving it to relatives. Um, uh, you know, it's a very, very difficult time. Some of it is inconvenient. A lot of it is really, really psychologically hard. And I also think, and I'm sure you guys will agree with me, spending all day looking at a screen is no substitute for meeting people and giving someone a hug, shaking someone's hand, or just sitting quietly and eating a meal together. I always catch myself when I'm meeting people at school. I'm like, nice to meet you, nice to meet you. <laughs> like, hand goes right back down. I know, I know. Yeah, it's really hard, and 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 I've been saying uh, my team, if they're, wa they're watching this, which they won't, because they, they have other things. But if they were watching this, they they would con they would confirm that I tell people at every meeting that we have now that we have to be careful to be extra patient with each other and to give each other a break. Uh, this is not a time to be. You know, sometimes people get irritated. Uh, how come you didn't send me this? And why was this late? And you forgot this. Maybe sometimes it's reasonable. I'm not sure it ever is reasonable, but it's definitely not reasonable now. We have to cut everybody some slack. Uh, this is a very tough time. Even when people seem to be doing well, often you find out they're not sleeping well, right. uh, or they're, uh, they're, uh, you know, they're gaining a lot of weight because they're eating the wrong food or they're drinking a lot of alcohol. This has all been documented. And, and uh, I think we just have to be as nice to each other as we can in these very, very tough times, knowing that it's going to be some months yet before we are back to normal, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, talking about mental health, I know that um, it's a common thing in medical um, studies or in the medical profession. There's a bit of a stigma sometimes um, to talk about yes. mental health or to, you know, just do do you think that it, the th things have improved uh, in the last eight years, or are things I think back th here, backwards? No, I think well, it depends which group you're talking about. I think for students, it's improved. Uh, uh, universities in general, and ours in particular, have put in efforts to make services available, like the well unit, or we're, we're actually. We had a meeting today. We're trying to improve access to psychiatry services for the rare person who needs, like, major has a major, major problem. Most people don't need a psychiatrist; they need a family doctor or a, a counselor or something. But some people do. We want to make sure they have access to those services. Um, uh, so, so in that sense, it's much better. Uh, I would be, I think we'd be naive to think that there's no stigma, despite the fact that almost everybody has mental health problems at some point in their life. Sometimes they're not very severe, but they have them. Um, and some people who, who do well still have had periods in their, in their life where they, they were really uh, having a very hard time. So um, the stigma is understandable, but it's not reasonable. My hope is that over time, if we get better at treating mental illness, that the stigma will go away because it'll become a more normal thing. You know, well, he has this thing, it's like he broke his leg, uh, he's have, he has a depression, it needs to be treated, he's getting treatment, oh, he's much better, that's great. And uh, it's a conversation like that, it's a normal conversation about someone who has an illness. Um, most families have people with mental health problems in them. Uh, I certainly have them in my family. Um, and um, uh, so I'm very sensitive about the stigma surrounding mental health. Um, I think the best way to address it is to treat people with mental illness the same way you treat people with any illness. 
Um, they're still people and they have uh, some limitations because of their illness, but uh, in most cases, that's all that it is and they need uh, care. Um, uh, in our medical program, we talk about physicianship, we talk about you know, healing and uh, curing, right? Um, we can't always cure, we usually can't cure mental illness, although some uh, mental disorders are self-limited or can be greatly improved, but we can always try and work for healing for any illness, right? For sure. So in relation to the policies now that, Mac that McGill, um, the Faculty of Medicine has, how does the faculty keep track to see if these services are actually helping the students or if it's improving and if it's helping them with their mental health and to, to so you well we're trying we don't have good tools what we do is we do surveys and you know that the students have informed us that they've been surveyed to death and that they have too many surveys and <laughs> if, we, if we have another survey we're never answering any more surveys it, it, there's no really good way because you don't know what the denominator we know that if somebody contacts the well office with an urgent problem, they'll get seen very quickly. We know that if they find out that somebody needs more than the well office, they'll do everything they can to try and get that person uh, referral to the right place. What we don't know is the person who didn't call the well office, mm -hmm. the person who, 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 for whatever reason, couldn't get through or something went wrong, who knows? We don't actually know that number. We hope it's small. We don't know. Um, I think, unfortunately, because of confidentiality and everybody's right to privacy, there's a limit to how how sure we can be. So we we rely on listening to students, try and get a sense of what their issues are. My sense is uh, we still have work to do. I'm not. I think I think we do. What well, we do for sure do a much better job than we did when I was a student. I mean, these services sort of existed, but then there was a real stigma and uh, you didn't complain. And, you know, a lot of things that we now consider to be unbelievably bad were just normal then. <clears throat> you, you have no idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was no, nobody was woke in those days. <laughs> I mean, our consciousness about issues like uh, racialized people or people with uh, uh, you know, other sexual orientations or any of this stuff, which in my view is like, how could you not know that? Right. You'll just have to take my word for it. We were, we were that clueless. And so when, when people say there's no such thing, like for example, there's no such thing as systemic racism, they must've just been born last Tuesday or something. Because, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> because um, I remember our attitude. I remember what we said about indigenous people or I'm, I'm deep like I'm I'm deeply embarrassed about some of the things that I said and some of the attitudes that I personally had should I have known better probably um, was it part of the time I lived in yes is it acceptable no right but I'm, I'm, I'm you know look, thinking back I'm like you know how could I even thought that right but, you know we're all capable of error, and uh, the best we can do is to try and learn from from our mistakes. So, so um, I I don't I, I think we're doing much better now. I think we're much more aware of these the issues that the students are facing. But I'd be surprised that if in twenty years from now my successor successor 
isn't saying, I can't believe this. <laughs> 2020, what were they thinking about? They're like, who were these people? They're going to come for you. Are there other tools that the faculty is thinking of incorporating beyond the pass or fail system? Like there are some schools in Canada. Well, you, you know that we've had the pass or fail system for like 45 years or something. It's not an innovation. It's not an innovation. It was pass fail when I was a student. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, let's think of other ones like a day off. You know how other schools have like so, an extra day Yeah, off. they're trying to, you, you got to remember, the biggest problem with med school is there's too much information. And, there is. And, mm -hmm. and, and we've toned it down. The basic scientists are always unhappy. They're, people don't know enough basic science, which is probably true. But there's just an infinite sea of information. And we want people to graduate, of course, with a base of information, but also a number of skills. Uh, that will allow them to address problems because that's what being a doctor is about. So being a, a dentist is about. It's you're faced with a problem and you have to have a repertoire of skills that allow you to do that. We are always making choices. There's only four years and you know that there's a push to reduce the time students are in medical school claiming it's way too long. They only need three years. I'm sure Maya would be happy. <laughs> well, three years, like, there are two schools in Canada, McMaster yep. and Calgary, that are three years, but they don't get summers off. So they, they, they don't actually have that much fewer hours. They just don't get any holidays. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the goal of med school is to prepare you for your residency. Uh, because at this point in history, when, when our school was founded, when you finished med school, you probably could go practice. In fact, people practice even without going to med school. They went to, uh, they were apprenticed in those days. But, but um, uh, now uh, medical practice is so complex and so specialized. Even family medicine, which is, you know, used to be called general practice, is, is a specialty. It takes a special set of skills to be good as a generalist. It's not the same thing as being a, a specialist in a very, very narrow discipline. And as such, I think it's very important uh, to, to understand that we're trying to give people a base of information. And every hour is counted. Like, every hour is figured, like, oh, you missed that lecture. You might not get that again. You might get one more chance, but that's it. I, I remember things that I missed in med school that I never caught up. <laughs> I never got good at dermatology. I mean, this is a truth. I just never got it. Um, okay, so talking about uh, the curriculum, we know that in Quebec, um, the places are, are publicly funded, uh, meaning there's a, there's a cap on places. I think uh, for, at McGill, every year, it's about 185 students. It's gone up to almost 200. It'll be 200. Oh, okay. Okay. That's good to hear. Because of Gatineau. Oh, and the, yeah. government, the government woke up and said, whoa, whoa, we don't have enough doctors. Why don't you take some more students? So we, we're going to have uh, about, 100, about 200 students. Yeah. So basically, we, we wanted to know if do you think we should we should actually increase the numbers of, of places because there's you know there's obviously a need for doctors. Um, so there's a big increase coming in Quebec. Uh, all of the medical schools are increasing. Um, uh, I think University of Montreal is thinking of yet another campus. They're trying to be the next uh, UBC. Um, I don't think our school should increase. Two hundred is probably the limit on what we could do. We could go two hundred five or something, but. I, I don't see us being able to increase much more beyond that uh, because we have to have enough teaching uh, sites and so on. 
who knows, maybe in the future. I'm not sure about how many doctors we need. Uh, you know, our, our healthcare system, well, first of all, we probably need more than we have now because we have a relatively low ratio of doctors to population compared to most countries. Uh, North America in general has a low ratio and Canada and Quebec in particular. Quebec has the most per doctors per capita, I think, in Canada, but it's still way below Europe, way, way, way below. Doctors usually don't like that because it would probably mean a fall in their incomes because there's more competition. Uh, that being, so there's a bit, of, uh, a bit of pressure from the doctor unions not to increase it too much. <clears throat> but the reality is uh, that we, we are reaching the limit of our capacity to train people. It's a very serious issue in family medicine where we don't have enough sites. And many of the people who went into practice in rural areas or uh, suburban communities uh, did so because they didn't want to teach, right? If they'd want to teach, they would have stayed downtown. But now um, every, everybody's going to have to teach pretty much because there's just so many students and so many residents. Um, on the other hand, I think there's a lot of work to be done to, to uh, expand the role of physician extenders. I think there's a lot of jobs that in Quebec in particular, we give to doctors that could be done by other people. Uh, you know, and, and I think, you know, we make a big emphasis at McGill on interprofessionalism, something I believe in very strongly. Um, I think doctors have a very special role to play in the healthcare system, but they're not the only important people. And often they're not necessarily the right people for certain problems. We ask doctors to do things that could be done better by other health professionals. Um, uh, you know, we need more nurse practitioners, we need physician assistants, we need scribes. We need, I think there's room to make doctors much more efficient by not having them do so much work that could be done by other people at lower cost, but also at higher satisfaction for both the other person and the doctor. Most people go to med school are not, don't have a clerical personality, for example. They don't like to, now there are some who do, but not, most people aren't interested in paperwork. That's not why they went to med school, right? There are people who like paperwork. I know it seems hard to believe, but it's true. And thank God there are people who like paperwork because we need them. They're very important because there's a lot of paperwork to do. Um, uh, some people um, are really want to do things with their hands. Other people want to really talk to people. We need diversity. You know, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Of course, we're talking about people of color. We're talking about uh, sexual uh, diversity. We're talking about indigenous people, all very important. We also need diversity of, of, of skills and personalities, uh, socioeconomic status. Medicine is a profession that is best when it, it really reflects the society uh, that it's from. Doesn't mean you want the same person who is an auto mechanic to also be a doctor. That may not be the best choice, but uh, you want the, maybe the brother or the sister of the auto mechanic to be the doctor. Um, uh, you don't want only people who went to, like, you know, I won't mention them, two CGIPs that uh, a lot of our students went to in this province, that you can probably guess. Uh, we want people from those CGIPs, of course, but we don't only want people from those CGIPs. We want people from all over and all different kinds of backgrounds. Yeah. Um, in relation to that, what would you say is a common myth about medical school applications when students apply? So the biggest myth, and I actually get complaints about this, is that people can cheat to get in. So I get complaints that are appalling. So-and-so 
was admitted because their uncle knows the dean and they put in a good word and the dean got them in. I've heard this. I've gotten written complaints about this. So let me tell you right now that we have a incredibly rigorous system for admitting people to medical school that it involves not just, the, first of all, the dean has nothing to do with it. I have nothing to do with it. I find out who got in the same time everybody else does. Usually when someone calls me to complain that someone didn't get in, then I know, oh, the admissions are out. I got a complaint. That's what it means. So I'm not involved. But I have reviewed, I've had asked for reviews in cases where people have raised questions. It's a very rigorous process based on as much as possible, either objective things like marks, or when it's subjective, there's multiple observers, not all of whom are faculty members, some are students, some are members of the public who give their opinions. So within the limits of what's humanly possible, it's as clean as possible. So, but the myth persists. Now, the myth has a basis in fact, because if you go back far enough, that's exactly how med school worked. The dean always had a few admissions for gentlemen of quality, you know, that they could, uh, and notice I, I said gentlemen on purpose, uh, so that they could, you know, make a special decision. Um, right. It hasn't been like that for many, many, many decades. Certainly it hasn't been like that. Even in my time, it wasn't like that. So it's, it, that's, that's one myth about medical school. Another myth about medical school is that it's really easy and medical students do nothing all day. That's, that's definitely not true. No, not not, true. Nobody thinks that. We confirm, not true. The other thing is that people think that, that lay people think it's just like on, you know, like, like Scrubs or, um, you know, one of those shows. There's lots Anatomy. of, there's Grey's Anatomy. Everybody's in love with everybody else. And there's, you know, <laughs> my wife told me she was watching Grey's Anatomy while doing, doing exercise today. And, you know, a doctor fell in love with a patient and the patient needed a heart transplant. So they arranged for the patient to jump ahead in the line to get a heart transplant. And she had to go and get the heart herself. I love it. I love the storyline. Yeah, in real life, that's a lawsuit, but yeah. Yeah, aside from losing your license and all that stuff, that is, that is just impossible and could never happen. So um, all those kind of things that people see on TV, None of that is true. I mean, I'm sure people fall in love and there's, you know, that stuff is human nature. That, that does happen, but that's not what med school is. Med school is hard. You spend a lot of time working very hard. And uh, in a normal year, you spend a little bit of time having a lot of fun, meeting friends and forming friendships that can last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. It is hard. And I was... Maya and I are friends, and before she started, I kept telling her, I'm like, med school is hard. She's like, it's gonna, it's gonna be great. And I'm like, med school is hard. You have to sit down, you have to study, you have to revise. It's hard. I don't think you realize it until you know how it is until you start it. Now she knows. Maya, Maya I know I'm being interviewed, but why did you think it was easy? <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> I didn't think it was easy, but I didn't think it was like this amount of information, I will put and it that way. And, and it's water, so I can tell you the, the, the uh, senior members of the faculty, otherwise known as the old, oh, I better not say it, the uh, senior members of the faculty will tell you it was much harder in our day, you have to know much more stuff, which is not true at all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
people keep saying that and i'm like how did you guys not sleep like so so it was a lot more memorization but there was less you could actually like there's i remember a legend about uh, there's a guy named arnie aberman who was the dean at toronto he was graduate from our school he graduated about five years before me very famous guy, fantastic dean, very well known. He helped, uh, he was also an interim dean at Northern Ontario Medical School. Great, great contributor to medical education in Canada, a great researcher. But the, the legend when I became a med, when I got into Med 1, he had already graduated, was that he had memorized Harrison's textbook of internal medicine. I don't know if anybody still has Harrison's textbook, but it was, a, it was, a, it was the textbook of internal medicine. He had memorized the entire textbook. So he knew, he knew all of internal medicine. There, was no, there were no further facts for him to know. Uh, this would be, of course, completely, you wouldn't even imagine to do such a thing now. It's, it's, it's literally impossible for a human being to memorize uh, all the facts that are relevant to internal medicine. It just cannot be done. And, um, you know, one of the most important events that took place in 2020 was the Black Lives Matter um, yes. marches, and that took place around the world. Um, you know, the marches called um, Call to attention the systemic racism that it, that is happening in communities again all around the world. So I know that in response to this in the summer, the Faculty of Medicine came out with a framework um, called the Social Accountability and Community Engagement Framework. Um, the right. office there. Um, mm -hmm. There's just no doubt. There's no doubt that we have been unsuccessful in uh, fully representing. The people were meant to serve in terms of the students and professors that we've recruited. And there are all kinds of reasons. I'm not going to spend time. I don't want to make excuses. We have to do better. But beyond that, I think it's only recently that we've really started to ask questions about how we got here. And I know that we spent a lot of time on Black Lives Matter. We're going to spend a lot of time on uh, trying to uh, work against anti-Black racism. You know, the university, the faculty, we have programs, uh, there's stuff in uh, the SACE office, uh, Social Accountability and Community Engagement Office has made this a top priority. But we also have anti-Indigenous racism. And both of these are big issues. A lot of what we hear about anti-Black racism comes from the United States, and we sort of think of uh, the United States and doesn't apply here. Well, that's not true. We have plenty of anti-Black racism here, and, and we have to do our part. But anti-Indigenous racism is slightly different because, like in the United States, the United States is sort of organized around slavery. If you really look at how its government was organized, look at the last election, it's still, they're still fighting the Civil War, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, our, our history with uh, uh, black people is very problematic. I have to say our faculty at various times has done better. We were one of the schools that did welcome a number of black students over, the, over time, especially from the Caribbean. Um, and uh, that has been, uh, that's to our credit. But we've never, uh, we've never really done it as a, a socially accountable way. We haven't said, oh, well, our city has 7% or 10% black people, we should have roughly seven, 10% black people in our staff, in our uh, students. We never did that. They were welcome from uh, the Caribbean. But have you ever heard of Charles Drew? This is for Maya, because you're in dental school, so you're excused. <laughs> no, I've never heard about him. So Charles Drew is one of our graduates. He is one of the most important people in the establishment of modern blood banks. 
okay, and he was a black graduate. He came from Howard University. Uh, he couldn't get into uh, medical school in the United States, and he came here, and he graduated here. He went back to the States, of course, and he is probably one of our most successful graduates, and nobody's heard of him. But everybody's heard of Sir William Osler. I know that everybody's down on Osler these days. He was a good guy, too, despite saying some inappropriate things. I, mean, I already confessed that I said some inappropriate things in my past, so I'm, I'm sure if I was as famous as Osler, they'd be trying to cancel me, too. But, but, but Charles Drew did a lot of good in the world, and we don't know about him. So there's that level. Then if you look at our curricula, not just ours, all curricula, uh, when I was a student here, I was saying to one of our few black faculty members, we, now first of all, I already confessed I'm terrible at dermatology, so please take that into account. We didn't learn much about dermatology in people of color. Okay? We didn't learn anything about uh, skin rashes in, in people of color, even though they have different appearances sometimes. That's an important thing to know. Um, uh, when I, so, so I'm using those as examples. The curriculum is full of stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. It's not for nothing that when uh, um, uh, indigenous people show up in the emergency room of our hospitals, they're assumed to be drunk. Uh, when black people uh, show up, uh, they're assumed to be on drugs. I mean, that happens, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we have a lot of work to do to change our attitudes to treat people of color, indigenous people as people, respecting their particular circumstances, their origins. And to go back to what I said, what I try and say at the beginning of med school and dental school, to listen and to be humble. Absolutely. Okay, and if, if you're respecting other people, you can't, it, it's very hard to, it, it, it's sign of insurance against making these mistakes by treating other people with respect, regardless of who they are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, am I perfect? Do I always get it right? No. Have I said some things that, in retrospect, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed about? Oh, yeah. I mean, nothing too terrible, but terrible enough, things I would not say anymore. Mm -hmm. um, did I treat some patients, um, uh, you know, um, making assumptions about them because they were, let's say, indigenous? Oh, yeah. Um, so I think we have to be humble and mindful and think about what we're doing and be very deliberate in going through our curriculum, our processes, our way of approaching things, taking into account the, the reality that even if we're not intending to be racist or anti-black or anti-indigenous or whatever, that sometimes by habit or circumstance, we are. I hope that with these, uh, the new policies that the faculty has implemented, I know I was reading the, uh, I was reading the report as well, and it's like in terms of staff as well, it's not just the student body, it's the staff. And, you know, I think that it's great that the faculty has taken these first few steps to increase the black representation. But it's a long road. Uh, there's is, all kinds sure. of reasons why we don't have as many black faculty as we should. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are our fault, some are social issues. Right. So we have to kind of convince them that this is a great place for them. Right, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, 
So also um, at the beginning of last year, Dr. Lian Feldman uh, assumed the function of surgeon in chief and medical director of the surgical mission of the MUHC, which is the McGill um, University Health Center. Um, she's actually the youngest to hold this position and she's actually the first woman um, to hold this position. Um, you know, in for the last 10 years, most students in medical classes have been women. Um, there's been mm -hmm. more women than men. But in leadership's position, um, I guess there's more men than women. So how is it important? How, like how so on, on my team, is, there's only a couple of guys. <laughs> all women. So basically, how important is it to promote women in positions of leadership? It's very important. Um, you know, I think, I think that uh, I've pushed, uh, there, there are some women who work with me as the vice deans of academic affairs who actually do most of the hiring, they sign off on most of the hiring, and uh, the current one is Dr. Fellows, and they know that I've pushed very hard to try and get more women in leadership positions. At the dean, in the deanery, they are a strong majority uh, women, not just in the, the disciplines like nursing and PNOT, which are mostly female, but, um, well, Dr. Mondu, uh, uh, people like that. So there's, there's a lot of women uh, uh, leaders. It's department heads where we have relatively few women, and that's quite common in many places. Um, some people have argued that women are too busy to waste their time on jobs like that. They don't think that job is worth doing. I don't know. I've tried to encourage women to, to consider those jobs. Um, you know, we are always at aiming for excellence. And um, people, one of the issues that women face is that there's, if you tell a guy that they, they should be the chair of a department, of course, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if, you tell, if you tell a woman that she's, oh, I don't think I don't I don't know I, I don't think I can do that. I mean there are exceptions, but that that is a well-known psychological game that people uh, psychological not game a psychological uh, posture. Uh, guys in general, not all, but in general overestimate frequently overestimate their ability, and women tend to underestimate their ability to take on leadership walls. My own experience is uh, I've worked with uh, very, very effective women, very effective men, people of many of different uh, sexual orientations. I have not found any correlation between people's gender and their ability to be a leader. Uh, it is completely unrelated. Uh, that being said, we've tried, we do try and accommodate people. You know, I mean, I could have um, you know, sometimes women would prefer not to take on a leadership role when they have small children. I also have men who have refused to take on leadership roles because they have small children, which is a good thing that they're seeing that. But, you know, those are issues, but that shouldn't really stand in the way. We have been greatly increasing the number of women we've hired. Um, I saw some statistics that suggest that we uh, are almost at 50-50 uh, for the whole faculty now. Um, it varies a lot by department. So the basic science departments are still overwhelmingly male. The clinical departments are generally have many more women in them. Um, uh, we have lots of women at the mid-level leadership, like division directors in the departments have divisions. 
Um, and I'm hoping we'll have more women in department heads. Uh, in terms of the vice deans uh, and that level, which is my level, uh, there's myself and Dr. Ben Arroyo. Uh, I guess Dr. Brousseau is a new member, so there's three of us now, three guys. And everybody else is a woman. And um, <laughs> they are extremely competent. And remember I said, you asked what was my proudest thing? I said my proudest thing is my team. I have an amazing team, most of whom have to be women. Women. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Um, so basically, our next segment is going to be a fun segment. So it's a oh, fun, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry that this wasn't amusing or fun. <laughs> no, no. Okay, well we'll try and recover. More fun for you. We found this fun, but this should be more fun for you. Oh, yeah. okay, good. Okay, Exa yes. exactly. Are these like short snappers or something? Yeah, it's like a ra rapid sec um, question segment. Okay. So we'll basically ask you Let me take question. a deep breath first. Yeah, <laughs> you, you can have your moment. Okay. Okay. Um, so basically we'll ask you <laughs> a, couple, a couple questions and basically the first thing that pops in your head, you know, you answer and we move on. Okay. No delay. No delay. Yeah, exactly. like no delay. Like we go, yeah. So if you were not a doctor, what would you be doing? I'd be an engineer. Okay. What is your favorite city and why? Um, probably Montreal uh, because I spent most of my time here. What school would, would, would you be dean of if not McGill? <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> my blood is, is red and white. There's nothing I can do about that. Yeah, that's, that's good to know where your loyalty is. <laughs> Uh, what what is one thing you miss about being on, camp on campus? Uh, one thing I miss uh, spending time hanging out in my administrative assistant's office, uh, yakking. Okay, one thing you don't miss? Um, uh, trudging up the hill in the snow in the winter when I've come from the Glen and I have taken the metro and I have to walk up the hill and it's minus thirty and the, there's a wind. <laughs> I do not miss that. I don't you, either. Yeah, you, um, what is the best quality to have as a doctor? Um, being able to listen. What is one incurable illness that you could cure? That I could cure? Yeah, let's see. It let's, wouldn't be incurable if I could no, cure it. Let's say that I would like to cure? Yeah, exactly. Like out of all the incurable illnesses that you know, what is one you would cure? Uh, I would try and, uh, and, and cure major mental illness. What is one specialty that you could have never seen yourself do? Dermatology. Anything? No, I could have done dermatology. Anything surgical. Oh, okay. okay. I'm um, very dangerous with tools. <laughs> Would you rather quarantine for another five years or redo medical school? Redo medical school. I'd love to redo your... medical school. <laughs> what is your favorite memory as a student? Oh, meeting my wife. Oh. That's, That's cute. A good memory. Favorite restaurant in Montreal? I don't eat out, so what is my favorite restaurant? Uh, I don't actually have a favorite restaurant. My favorite hobby is uh, probably photography. Photography. It's a tie with computer programming. It's hard to pick which one is my favorite. It varies. Putsin or pizza? Sorry? Putsin or pizza? Oh, pizza. No, I, poutine. We're, we're the Quebecers are listening to you right now. Uh, what can you do? <laughs> um, beach or skiing? Uh, skiing. And finally, soccer or hockey? Soccer. 
So I, I used to, I would, used to the answer used to be hockey, but I became embittered after they expanded the NHL too much. And and when the, when your team is arbitrary, when I was a kid, the the, the hockey teams like the Montreal Canadiens, uh, the same players were there for years, and they lived in town, and you knew them, and they were part of the you know they're part of the local culture. And uh, I was like almost everybody I knew like a rabid hockey fan, and then they turned it you know they made it even more of a business, and you know. I haven't been a hockey fan since Gretzky retired. Well, it tells us it's a long time. <laughs> so to end the segment, is there any advice that you would give someone in medical school right now or that wants to pursue medicine? Someone who wants to pursue medicine, uh, you make sure you're passionate about being a doctor. Make sure this is something you want to do no matter what. Because being a doctor, going to med school and being a doctor is not easy, as we discussed earlier. And it's really for people who are committed. It's not, it's not something to do on a whim. It's something you really have to be committed. And if you're committed to do it, and if you're lucky enough to have the ability to, to because you do have to be good at school, um, then I recommend um, uh, just uh, picking an area that you really love and studying that and being as good at that as you can be uh, as, a, as a way to, to, to get into medical school. For people in medical school, I would say enjoy the relaxing time you're having now because it's only going to get harder. No. Somebody told me that when I was I was in med one or med two, and it was true, but it was so depressing. No, they, uh, no. The what I would say is it is hard, but you are among the most lucky people in the world. Yeah, you get to do an amazing profession at a time where I mean, just look at COVID nineteen. In less than a year after this thing started. There is not one vaccine. There's a pile of vaccines, new treatments. Uh, the infection is going to be kept under control. And, and, and really, we've been able to apply science in ways that would have been, I don't know, if you ever read about the 1918 influenza outbreak, uh, how different it was and how much more traumatic it was. We are in a very, you are in a very privileged time as well as a very privileged place. Enjoy every minute because it is very hard and it probably will get harder. But if you take a moment to reflect on how rich the experience you're having with, I can't imagine any profession that's better. No offense to dentistry. Dent I was going to say dentistry. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, I just told you I can't do anything with tools, right? So yeah. I, dentistry wasn't even, it wouldn't even enter my consciousness as a possibility because it's not what I can do. But it, it really, I think we're extremely privileged. I, I consider myself an unbelievably lucky person. And I think sometimes we get wrapped up in the details. You have a bad day and you're upset. And that happened to me a lot. But if you're lucky, remember, yeah, it was a crappy day, but man, look what I got to do. Look at the cool things I'm getting to experience. Look at the stuff I get to see, the, yeah. the privileges I have. That's what I would say to a med student. Yeah, that's true. That's good. I have, I have those moments, to be honest. Like I go to school and I'm so overwhelmed and I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. This is too much. And then I have those moments like on a weekly basis where I'm like, if I could just talk to the Amy three years ago, that's like all she wanted to do was get into dental school. Like that's all she wanted in her life. And then now I'm like, it's so hard. I hate my life. 
I have these moments where I'm just so appreciative. So, so a lot of life, something I learned really by being Dean, because when we're doing these things, uh, while we're doing them, it feels like nothing's getting done. We're just going from meeting to meeting. Nothing's happening. Oh, it's so boring. Uh, these yeah. meetings. But then you look back over a year or two years or three years, four years, and you start counting up the things you've accomplished. And I think school is like that. While you're doing it, it's very tough. Very, very, it's overwhelming, actually. Mm-hmm. But when you finish a section you have a sense of accomplishment and you you will be able to reflect back on the richness of the experience you had and then you know if you're a dentist you're going to go out into practice and you're going to uh, be able to uh, really make a difference for people's lives that's that's great very few people get a chance to do that and you get paid too which is nice right because <laughs> we're not we're not badly paid i mean you know, compared to somebody who has an ordinary job, we're very lucky people. Definitely. And uh, I hope people remember how lucky we are. I know I've said that about six times already in this interview, but I said, because it's, I honestly believe it. Sometimes I, you know, I can't believe that I got to do all these things. Like even to be on a podcast. That's so cool. <laughs> who would want to hear me talk? Like, are you? <laughs> a lot of people, trust me. We feel so honored that you came on our first episode and thank you so much for taking the time this evening to sit with us and answer our questions. It's um, my pleasure. Yeah, we're super grateful. We know how busy you are and like once again, thank you. Like this podcast was so much fun and thank you so much. Sitting well, thanks for having calls. me.